couple of things we want to do this morning here at the beginning of this portion of our service. One is to introduce uh, a new member to our church family. If, if she's here still, I don't, she was sitting back there, but Bethany, have you moved? Oh, there she is right where I pointed. Okay, perfect. Bethany, not Roberts, but Wickerink is here this morning. And it's very nice to have you. Congratulations. They were married a couple of weeks ago in Victoria. So congratulations to you. Tim is a, Tim is a, a drummer in a Christian band, and they are at a, some kind of thing. No, they're not? He's in okay, Saskatchewan somewhere playing drums in a band. So there you go. That's your life, Beth. <laughs> we also want to say something about a couple that has been married for 50 years. Uh, there's actually two couples in our church who are going through this experience about the same time. June and Richie, whom we will mention last, uh, next week, are in Whitefish, Montana with their family uh, on this weekend celebrating their 50th anniversary. So congratulations to June and Richie, but certainly to Wayne and Darlene. And I haven't seen them here yet this morning. Thank you very much. Where's Darlene? Oh, there she is. Okay. Why don't you guys stand up? Please stand up. Very good. We are so grateful that Wayne and Darlene have been married together for 50 years. And, and not only have they formed a life together, been married together for 50 years, but they have served the Lord together for 50 years in a significant and powerful way. Uh, and certainly in our church family, they have been right at the heart of everything that we are. And I'm just so grateful for Wayne and Darlene and the ministry and the example and everything that the two of you are and mean to all of us. Thank you very much for who you are. I'm so grateful the Lord has blessed us with them. Yeah. And, and by the way, uh, like there have been some 50th wedding anniversaries, I think, during the time that I've been here, kind of come and gone, and, and we kind of slid over those. Uh, and it's not always possible for us to know exactly what that date is that's coming up for you. So if you are someone, Bethany, you're not there yet, but one day, um, if you're one of those people who has a 50th coming up, we'd love to hear so that we can acknowledge that as well. We want to acknowledge those people who have served the Lord the way that they have and honored Him with their marriages over such a long period of time. So please, don't just keep that silent to yourselves. Make sure that we're aware of all of that. The, uh, the sermon last week about Jesus and origins was received very well. I received probably as many comments about the sermon last week as I ever have. But what's most important is that hopefully all of us are blessed in an understanding about the truth of Christ. We have to face tough questions, good questions many times by our culture, and we have to have great answers. And the church hasn't always done that as well as we should and could. And so I just pray that this series and others that we do will be a blessing as we try and answer those kinds of questions. The idea that the cha intellectual challenges posed to traditional Christianity are somehow by us unanswerable, or that we're not on firm ground intellectually when we continue to believe 
the traditional truths of Christianity is simply not true. In fact, I would say that unbelief actually stands on the weaker side of things intellectually than faith does. And we need to stand there. We need to continue to believe and to stress these things that we've believed for a long time and will continue to. And the world needs to hear the good news, the message about Jesus. Today, I want to talk about Jesus and the good. In other words, Jesus and ethics, or Jesus and morality. And I want to start with an idea that will get us to Jesus and morality in a moment, but first talk about human beings and who they are. And so, Jesse, there we go. Look at this. You know this passage well, but this says something about who we are. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And when Paul writes this, he's not just writing about those people who don't know Christ or something. He's writing about humanity. He says, this is who we are. And then, of course, in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why four people were baptized today. Because that's where we stand before God. Without the Lord, this is our lot. And I'd like to say something different. I'd like to say, actually, we're all good people. Or I would like to say, as the world often does about these people whom they love, maybe at a, at a secular funeral, he was a good person. And, and every time I hear that, there's part of me that wants to think, well, yeah, I, I understand. Relatively speaking, he was a good person. She was a good person. But the fact is that all human beings stand in a place before the Lord worthy of judgment. That's who we are. And it's been that way since the fall, because indeed all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what I want to say about that then is this. Foundations for morality could come from human experience. And they often do. But they shouldn't. They shouldn't. It just doesn't make sense that we would look at humanity, that we would look at ourselves and say, I can figure out what it means to be moral. I can set the standard. I can establish for all of humanity what it is that we should be doing. I can't do that. Since the fall, at least, I have been incapable. And so have you. And so human history is characterized, it seems to me, and, and I realize there could be somebody disputing this today, and I, I'd be glad to talk to you about this afterward. Like, if you think, you know, Kelly, actually, humanity is really good. I, I, you know, we could talk about that. I'm, I'm open to do that. And I'm open to do that in a non-judgmental kind of mean way. Like, I'm not going to come and, and blast you because of, of what you believe. And I'd hope that you wouldn't blast me. But it does seem to me that human history is characterized by self-centered, immoral behavior. That seems to me who we are. In contrast to that, the claim in the New Testament is that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth as the Son of God, lived without sin and was therefore uniquely qualified to speak about what is good and right. The life he lived was an exemplary kind 
of life. And so reference to a good life, a life of self-sacrifice, is to reference the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And by the way, like so many of the other things uh, that you have the freedom to do, you certainly have the freedom to not believe this. Like it's possible you could be sitting there today and think to yourself, I don't believe this stuff about Jesus. I don't believe he was sinless. I believe he was like everybody else, and he sinned. Uh, And that stuff in the New Testament about him being amazingly free from sin, you know, I don't believe it. Well, you have the freedom to believe that. You could think to yourself, these Christians keep swallowing this stuff, and it just doesn't work for me. You have the right to believe that. You, You have that freedom to make an intellectual choice. But personally, I find the teachings of Jesus compelling. In fact, they're so compelling, they seem to me to fit perfectly with the claims that he makes about being the Son of God. And so there are those who are Jewish leaders who sent some other people to go and arrest Jesus. Go arrest him. And they're, and they're there to arrest him. And while they're to arrest him, they hear him teach. He says some things. And they walk away empty-handed. They didn't take him. And they go back to the people who sent them. And the people who sent them say, where is he? We sent you out to arrest Jesus. Why is it that you didn't get him? And they say, no one has ever spoken like this man. And they walked away because they were so impressed with the words of Jesus. No one has ever taught like this. And I would say that that's exactly true. In fact, if you take the claims about Jesus that we've been considering, one of the things that stands out is the consistency between the moral teachings that he offers and the way that he lived. He said, I am this way. I came from here. And those things fit. You look at what he says, his teaching. It's so masterful. It's so authoritative, they said. And because it is, those things just cohere. They fit together. And so I would say the life, the teachings, and the claims to be the revelation of God, which we've said so many times now, made by Jesus actually do cohere. They cohere. And people can challenge him on all kinds of fronts, but you can't challenge Jesus in terms of the way he apparently lived and taught. Now, it's interesting. There was a point in the life of the prophet Muhammad after he had years before been run out of Mecca and had to go, I can't remember, 400 miles north to Medina and set up his religion in Medina, there was a point at which he decides he's going back to Mecca. But when Muhammad went back to Mecca, he didn't go alone. So he went back to Mecca, and he took with him an army, and he stood outside the city, and he basically said to the city of Mecca, if you don't become followers of me, we're going to attack. And so the city of Mecca decided that that wasn't very good for them, and they became Muslim. One of the things I love about our faith is that you just don't see that in Jesus. In fact, when they came out to arrest him, you remember somebody grabbed a sword? They whack off Malchus's ear? We're going to fight for you, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? Put that sword away. My kingdom is just not 
that kind of kingdom. Because Jesus ultimately is the prince of what? Peace. That's who he is. That's the character of Jesus of Nazareth. And so you just don't find those things written about him by others. The followers of Jesus have made a lot of mistakes, that's for sure. People accuse us all the time as the church of making some huge blunders in history. And the fact is we have. I cannot begin to try and justify some of the mistakes that have been made by Christians historically. We have really blown it. There have been times when when Christians have been ruthless and mean-spirited. They have they've committed atrocities. And oftentimes they've committed them in the name of Jesus. But you don't find that justified in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Instead, he gives himself as a pure self-sacrifice for humanity. The Bible says about him, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's exactly what he did. And that is a, that's a fact. It is essentially undisputed that Jesus gave himself in this way to humanity. And so if we're going to sum up our point so far, it'd be something like this. Following Jesus as a source of moral instruction simply makes sense. No matter what you think about the divinity of Christ, following his moral teaching makes sense because it's of such value to humankind. And it's consistent with who he was. And so I want to just say three other things quickly about Jesus and his teachings that I think we have to really take seriously and which are in fact challenged at so many levels by the world. But I think this is where we need to stand. And by the way, if if there are young people here today, those of you who are young especially need to hear this because you hear from your teachers or from people around you and certainly in the all uh, present media that is there constantly bombarding you with its messages, you keep hearing messages about what's right and what's wrong And there has to be somehow, it seems to me, a source for this, a legitimate source when we're asking questions about what's right and what's wrong and what's good. And the church makes claims about Jesus and what's good. And I think we have to take these things seriously. In fact, I would say that humanity depends on whether or not we ultimately take these things seriously. And so first... All the claims Jesus made about himself, if untrue, raise serious questions about the high value of his ethical teaching. And my point is, the teaching of Jesus is exemplary. Everybody says that. He's the greatest teacher of ethics uh, in the history of humankind. But if the claims about Jesus himself are untrue, then that raises huge questions about the validity of the ethic that he keeps teaching. If Jesus is lying, for example, or even if he's just mistaken, then his ethics lose much of their value because they come from a dishonest, questionable source. That's just a fact. Like, that's not hard to see. It's easy to see that if Jesus is not who he said he was, after all the claims that he made, there is a problem when all of a sudden we turn to Jesus as the source of our ethic. But here's the thing. Everybody sees value in his ethics. Everybody does. Nobody questions that. Nobody ever says, maybe this ethic that he's espousing here is not a good one. Everybody says it's exemplary. And that, I think, says something about who he was. 
Now, we've looked at all claims of truth and all that in the last few weeks. You know, I, I'm totally convinced that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. This, I think, coheres. Second thing I want to say. Valuing the exemplary life and teachings of Jesus, which everyone does, points in the direction of valuing what he claims is the source of his teachings. In other words, where did he get this stuff? And what are the claims that he makes about where he gets this stuff? Because the thing he does say very clearly is, this does not come from me. It's fascinating. Jesus, the greatest ethical teacher in the history of the world, doesn't say, look to me. He doesn't say, I'm the source of all that. What he says are things like this. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. The very works that I'm doing testify that the father has sent me. Where is Jesus' point? Well, with his actions, with the holiness that he lived out, he kept pointing to the Father. And what does he say about his teaching? My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Doesn't that speak volumes? There is something powerful here in the claim of Jesus as he points specifically to the one who sent him and says, this is where I'm grounded. And so I'm not making claims just on my own. I'm not making personal claims just to lift myself up. Let me point to the one who sent me. He comes to the earth, but in relationship with his father and tells us about the father. And so ultimately, that's where we have to go in our thinking if we trust the teachings of Jesus. You can't just do this. You can't just choose to follow Jesus and say, what a great teacher he was. And there's a lot of people who who want to do this. Lots of people want to look at Jesus and say, what a great teacher, let's follow him. And they don't want to accept the Father. And all the while, Jesus is saying, look, if, if you're... If you're going to take seriously the things that I'm saying, you're going to have to look to my source. And my source is the Father. Don't miss it. And so God is the source of the good. He's the source of the life and the teachings of Jesus. So to hold on to Jesus and reject his Father, it seems to me, would be entirely intellectually inconsistent. I don't believe in the Father. I don't believe in this God stuff. But Jesus was a great teacher. And I would say you just crossed the bounds of intellectual consistency based on what Jesus himself says about himself. And then finally, it seems very difficult to my mind to arrive at a consistent, high ethical position without reference to something beyond the natural. And we've talked about this. For those of you who are here this morning for the first time, you weren't, didn't hear the rest of the lessons, maybe that won't make as much sense to you. But I'm convinced that if we're going to know anything about what truth is, it's going to have to come from us, to us from outside. We're not going to get it by gazing at the stars. We're not going to get it by gazing inside our own hearts. 
Where we're going to find truth is when Jesus tells us who God is because he comes to reveal the Father. And so I would say, grounding our ethics in humanity on what we feel is right makes little sense. And if for no other reason, because of who we are. Like, have you watched us in action? Do you see what happens to us when we're left to our own devices? We have throughout history proven just how weak morally we are, how self-centered we are, how frail we are, how inconsistent we are, how corrupt we are, how unloving we can be, how we change our opinions with the blowing of the wind. Just look at yourself and ask yourself, do you live perfectly? Do you think the world should look at your life and on the basis of how you live, construct an ethic? Who you want to choose? John Casella. I could look at John and say, you know, John's such a good guy. I think I'm going to build my world around John. My whole ethical foundation will be John Casella and the way that he lives. And Sheila would be going, please don't. Please don't do that. Because she knows him. She would say that's a mistake. Some of you I don't know all that well, but it'd still be a mistake. I guarantee you. We just can't do it. Where does that selfishness come from? It comes from our nature as human beings. You know, I love my grandchildren, but I'm not so naive to think that if we just left them to their own devices that they would all end up little angels. Is there anything more self-serving than a crying one-year-old? It's no wonder that the serpent so easily was able to convince Eve to eat the fruit because we want what we want and we want it now. And by the way, isn't it interesting that I'm saying about that about human beings who are made and even retain, in my opinion, something of the image of God? What if we don't have that? What if we don't believe in the divine at all and are purely naturalists? Humanists thinking that we're the epitome of the natural order. Do we really think that on a naturalistic basis that we will reach the heights of moral righteousness? Have you looked at nature lately? What do wolves do with fawns? What do grizzly bears do with calf elk? What do snakes do with frogs? Have you watched what the cultures void of religion do to each other, to their fellow human beings. And so it only makes sense to me that left on our own without God that we would end up ruthless. Even so-called Christian nations, which of course suffer from having the presence of way too much humanity within themselves, abuse other nations for their own ends. That's who they are even when they claim about themselves that they are Christian. Take God out of the picture, and I guarantee you it will be far worse. And that's why Jesus came, to show us something different, to lift us up, to bring the presence of God's kingdom. And frankly, it is our only hope. And so, young people, you can choose, if you want, to rest your decisions about morality on your own hearts. You know, you can say, well, this is how I feel. 
This is, this is how I feel I am. This is who I think I am. This is what I think is right. You can do that. But I guarantee you, you will end up in a much, much worse place than if you actually follow Jesus and his ethic so that your existence doesn't become void of the one influence ultimately capable of bringing into the world good. So I want to just conclude by saying the good comes from the word of God. The good comes from Jesus. And that is where we have to stand if we're going to try in any way to end up being right and good. It's only in Him that we can in any way follow what God wants us to be. It's tough enough even with the teaching. And of course, we need His forgiveness and His grace. Can you imagine if we try and do it on our own? Let's pray. Lord, all over the world right now, there are people who are making choices, oftentimes ethical choices, and they're basing those choices in something that's a long ways from you and your will for their lives. And we bear the brunt of those decisions. Our culture suffers because of those decisions. And Father, we too oftentimes make decisions that are not in line with your will. We don't look to your word. We don't look to your son. We're not trying to follow you. We're just following the guidance of our own thoughts or our own hearts. And Lord, we are absolutely incapable of doing that well. And so help us to rely absolutely on who you are, to ground what we believe and teach and practice and what we think is good. Help us to ground that in the teachings of the Messiah and help us to follow that teaching with all our lives. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Before I uh, turn this over to Jonathan, I wanted to make mention, I just saw that Carl and Helen are in the back. And many of you know that in the last week, uh, Carl experienced a heart attack when he was down on the Oregon coast camping with his family. And we are so grateful that God has, through his care and protection, watched over you and your family, and that Carl is here today with us uh, and is on the mend. So praise the Lord for God's care of the Roberts family, for sure.